I'm very happy today to speak with Gilbert Ackerman, the chairman of Straumann, the world leader in aesthetic dentistry. Uh, Gilbert Ackerman has been uh, associated with Straumann for over 20 years, first as the CFO, then the CEO, and over the last 11 years as the chairman of the board. During that time, Straumann went from a relatively small company with about 100 million Swiss francs revenues and, and 400 employees to a juggernaut with oh, today 8,000 employees and, and about 2 billion Swiss franc sales. And, and of course, in the process, becoming the number one in this industry. Gilbert is also a board member on several boards, listed companies, private companies, some not-for-profits, including IMD. Among the publicly listed companies that he is on the board of is Julius Baer, the, uh, the private bank. One last thing I should mention for full disclosure is that we're very proud of the fact that Gilbert Ackerman is also an IMD graduate. He is an EMBA graduate uh, of the class of 2000. Gilbert, you started out your career in banking, uh, 10 years at UBS in investment banking. Why did you choose to start your career in banking? What was appealing about banking? I was interested in the bigger scheme of finance, in the globalization of it, and above all, the opportunity to actually interact with uh, the, the executive suite of different companies in different industries, uh, having a global role. Uh, so, you know, engaging uh, in different parts of the world, uh, the US, uh, obviously Europe, uh, but also Mexico. It was kind of the alternative to go into strategy consulting. So how much did these years in banking shape your perspective uh, on, on the world and on business and shape the rest of your career? I would say it gave me uh, a much more global perspective. You know, obviously coming from a very small village in the eastern part of Switzerland I, I, and from a, a household that wasn't very international, kind of gave me the opportunity to see the world and see the differences and the diversity of the world. I think it started to create this curiosity to see different things, you know, in different industry, also to better understand some of the differences between industries, but also culturally, some of the big differences. So I think it started to raise this intellectual curiosity within me. It sounds like you enjoyed it massively, but you still decided to leave after about 10 years yeah. in investment banking. So you are an analyst, you are an associate, you know, you, you work hard, day and night almost. But that's, that's not really the issue. So it's actually very good school, okay, for perseverance, you know, and resilience and all of that. But at the same time, it's transactional. So you do your deal, whether that's an M&A or a divestiture or a restructuring or a, whatever, a fundraising. And then you move on. So that takes three, six months. But you never look after, well, what's actually the outcome? What's the result of it, you know? And at one point I said, actually, I would like to see what my decisions, what the actions are actually delivering. Well, what is the outcome? So that's why I was interested to move into the corporate world. And the Straumann IPO, that was my last banking transaction that I led. And that's how I ended up at Straumann. And so, again, Straumann at the time is, is a relatively small company. First, you become the CFO for four years, yeah. and then you become the CEO for about eight years. During that time, the company grows immensely. 
tell us some of the highs and the lows, some of the great moments and some of the more challenging moments of these eight years as CEO of this fast growing company? I think the dynamic growth, that's been hugely exciting. So, you know, we were talking about 30, 35% growth. So something between 25, 35 for a number of years. That's not easy, but it's hugely exciting. We started to, let's say, conquer the world in the sense that we uh, established our direct presence across the globe in Asia, in the US, and we made it to the number one player in implants during that time. Because when I took over, we were number two, number three-ish type of thing. And the market was significantly smaller, you know. At the same time, obviously, more on the low side was, you know, when we entered into the financial crisis, we were relatively, no, we were too slow to react, okay? We kind of felt, okay, that's a temporary thing. We'll, we'll actually come back. Uh, we don't need to do much. And that proved to be, in hindsight, the wrong perspective. And then it took us quite a while to actually re-energize the company, also make some structural changes. My direct successor that we appointed when I moved to the board that didn't work out, okay? It took us actually too long a time to correct that. So the common thread here is if you have this situation, you're probably much better off to react quicker and maybe it's better to be too quick than too slow. That's kind of my takeaway, which is something actually that came in very helpful for the COVID situation. There, I think, we did a lot of things well, and we were extremely fast. So I'll come back on this, sure. but I also want to come back on the positive. So, yes. so, so you said, look, we grew 30 35%, we expanded internationally, and so on. When you say it like this, it sounds effortless. You know, it sounds like uh, the world was just waiting for you guys. Of course, it's never like this. So, yeah. so what did you guys do well? during that period to warrant that success? Because you, you're also, you also went from number two, number three to number one. Yeah. You expanded the market, you conquered. I mean, there must have been some obstacles that you guys overcame and there must be some, some specific skill or, or um, what allowed you to be so successful during all these years? We always looked at our industry as an industry that is not very mature. So we looked to get talent from industries which are much more advanced and much more mature, trying to bring those expertise and that skill into the company and combine it with what we have. Doing so allowed us to actually execute rather successfully on that strategy. If you are in a small setup out of the Basel land okay, that we were, you believe you own the world in Switzerland, but you have no clue about the rest of the world. So bringing in that much more international perspective, these people that have done this before and give them the freedom to actually execute on a strategy and also the trust, that's the recipe that worked well. So hiring more international folks yep. coming from other industries that had already been part of of a globalization and of a fast growth, fast deployment sort of uh, process. Yeah. Which, why the, by the way, is again the situation today. Today we have other challenges. So you look at what have other industries already done related to this, and then we'll try to bring people in that, that understand this, you know, direct to consumer, digitalization, things like this. 
Is there something that is profoundly somehow Swiss to be able to have these incredible champions in in niche-like markets? Um, because again, you you are a technological leader, right? Yeah. And again, it's not entirely obvious why a, a small company initially from Basel has to become world leader in dental implants. Obviously, we are in medical devices, and I think in, in terms of, of, of capabilities that Switzerland has with the university, the ETH, EPFL, etc., uh, then a very, very small domestic market, which necessitates going broad international early on. Uh, I think a, a ability to, I think, deal with other cultures in an open-minded way I think all of that comes together. And if you look around the globe, I mean, many small countries are hugely successful in technology or in, in, in medical devices. You know, think of Israel, think of Denmark, right. think of Switzerland. So I think that's the commonality. Now, shifting to your board career, you are serving, of course, on the board of Strahman, also on the board of Julius Baer, and you've served over the years on multiple boards, listed companies, private companies not-for-profits, again, including IMD. Uh, let's start with, what's the role of a board? Is there a general answer to the role of a board? Yeah, for, for me, the board's role is to create a framework for the company and its management or leadership to deliver sustainable success, okay? And in combination with that, allow the leadership, be it the CEO, the executive committee, to be successful. That's basically the role of the board, and at the same time, obviously, ensuring the right oversight, you know, and governance. Now, when you say framework, what does a framework look like? First of all, it's dynamic. So it's on one hand making sure you have the right people, you have the right organizational setup. Obviously, you need to have a commonly understood uh, vision or strategy. But above all, you need to make sure you are able to execute on it or deliver on it. And I think that there are these different elements that you consistently have to think about and make sure that they are you know, in the best possible shape to actually deliver on that uh, aspiration. So what's the role of the chair? It's mostly people-oriented. So obviously you got to have a functional relationship or partnership with the CEO. You now, if the chairman and the CEO don't work together or don't function, you have a problem. Okay? Uh, so that, that, that's one and probably the most important element. The other one is obviously to have an effective and efficient board. It's not like control and command. It's kind of leading by engagement and getting these people engaged, you know, giving them enough space to voice their opinions or even to ask questions, sometimes maybe not, not, not so smart questions. But you are kind, you try to orchestrate all these individuals who are obviously esteemed and experienced people, but it's not the same as being a CEO, okay? Because this is a group of very independent, minded and proven leaders okay and and there you have to make sure that this works you know effectively and efficiently to the benefit of the company and in support of the executives and the ceo 
To what extent does the role of the board and or the role of the chair change either across industries or across types of company, listed, non-listed? You've served again on, on multiple types of boards. Do you see big differences or are these fundamentally the same principles? I think there are big differences. Obviously, private markets, public markets, that's a huge difference, okay? Right. Because in private markets, it's clear, you know, the, the, the aim is clear. You, you, you want to deliver value, you know, and returns to the owners. And, and that's really all that matters. Huh? Uh, whereas I was in public companies, a, a lot of, you know, what I call uh, this, this public political correctness governance type of thing is, 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 is important, okay? Uh, with the proxies and all of that, the independence, the tenor thing and all of this, you know. Uh, I think in, in, in more regulated industries, uh, also on the public side, it, it's, it's, it's much more about compliance, governance, risks. So the oversight so, side. So the oversight side. So, I mean, you, in financial services or in, probably also in insurance, you do a lot of oversight work, okay? which uh, is not really super sexy, uh, let's put it this way. It's not entrepreneurial, huh? whereas on the industrial side, or in particular, I think with, with Strauman, it, it's, it's a very in, in entrepreneurial mindset, okay? I mean, we, obviously, oversight is important, governance is important, all of that matters. You know, uh, you are in compliance with all the laws and the regulations and, and uh, the, 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 the regulator, because it, it's also a very regulated space with the FDA and, and all of that. But we spend the majority of our time, you know, on strategic questions. How do we actually develop this company further to remain successful and keep relevant, okay? in the big schemes of things with all the other players that are actually there. Also some new entrants, you know, maybe from technology side and God knows what, you know. So it's, it's more like 80% is kind of creative, you know, what I call the entrepreneurial side. And when I say entrepreneurial, I mean sustainable long-term. Uh, and and, and it's, it's uh, in financial services, probably more like 70% is oversight and 30, at best 30% is kind of, okay, how do I evolve the business model and things like this. Is this one of the reasons why, as I was looking through your profile, you have served on, on the board of so many private companies? Is it because yeah. it's just more fun for you as a director? Uh, for, for me, personally, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely preference. I believe your having impact is more possible one in smaller outfits or maybe mid-sized outfits, okay, than the, the huge, large, super large public companies. Uh, and that's what motivates me. And that's what I'm interested in. At the end of the day, I want to create some impact, you know. Let me come back to Straumann now. So, yes. so you were CFO, CFO and then CEO, yes. four years, eight years. Then you joined the board in 2009. You became the chairman of the board in 2010. Going from an executive position to a non-executive chairmanship is, is a challenge. How, how did you manage the, the shift to a non-executive role? 
Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but what hurdles did you have to confront? <laughs> no, but uh, I think it, it, it hugely depends on your personality. Okay. Whether you're able to actually to let go and give someone else, your successor in that case, you know, the necessary freedom and, and also be prepared to accept that this new CEO will do things differently. Okay. And will have a different perspective and, and at times even reverse some of the things you actually implemented. Okay. And, 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 you know, I think that ability or, or that, or having that ability or not having that ability is a function of your personality. So I, I believe I have this, I, I am able of doing this. So you didn't have to work at it. It's something you've got it or you don't. Or you had to work uh, well, at it. Probably you have, you, you can work at it, you know, but I think you have either a bias towards one end or the other one. And I would say I have a bias towards, I'm, I'm able to let go. Okay. okay? Uh, and the other thing is, look, I, I was at the stage of my life where I knew if, if I were to continue the CEO role, I would uh, probably uh, end up uh, in disaster, you know, uh, private health, you know, burnout, things like this. Uh, you know, my private life wasn't the way it was supposed to be. So I, I had kind of a motivation also to change my, my, my right. lifestyle. Okay. okay. Having said that it was the right time, which probably helps, then, then there's this question of how do you let go and change role? Yeah. yeah. And, and on top of that, as you've seen, you know, I, I did several other things, you know, then in combination. So okay. that wasn't my only activity. I actually diversified my activities quite a lot, you know, with other companies, other, uh, even one, one other German role at the time. And, and that helps you to kind of get distance, you know, and gain distance. Does the role of the board change during a crisis or does the relationship between the board and management change during a crisis? I don't think the role changes. It becomes obviously a little bit more intense. I think it becomes more frequent, okay, the interaction. So you have, you have many more meetings than you would usually have, okay, it's because it's not the ordinary course of business. Uh, but I think the role as such between who does what, you know, and that you work in tandem and that you are a partner and then you try your best to make these guys, keep these guys successful, you know, and also provide them confidence, okay. Because obviously in a situation like this, you got to do unpleasant things and you got to back them up and say, guys, it's okay. Okay. And, you know, yes, the share and, and, and don't worry about the share price. Okay. We got to do what's right for us and the company and what would allow us to remain or return to this sustainable success that we want to have. And, and yeah, you, you, you back them up and you help them. That means that you as a board need to absorb some of the pressure from the outside, right? Because the outside world might, might kind of expect you to do more or, I mean, let me take the IMD case, yeah. right? The board could have been a lot more uh, pressing on us. Uh, not that you were not pressing, but you could have said, for example, we will not tolerate losses. Yeah. Right. And I think one of the things that I'm very grateful for is the fact that the board was able to say, look, 
Clearly, we need to reduce the cost base and play defense. We also need to yes. look to the future and continue to invest in key areas. And so you exercised a lot of self-restraint, right? Um, at least that's the impression I had. That, that, you know, it, <laughs> I, I'm also thinking that you know, at some point you have the foundation board and you're thinking the foundation board is going to look at us and say, what? You guys allowed this? So it felt that the board absorbed some of the pressure and only transferred some pressure to us, but transferred just the right amount of pressure to us. And it sounds a little bit like that's also what you did at Shaman, to say, you know, they, well, we want them to have some pressure, but we also want them to feel that they need to continue to do what's right for the company. No, absolutely. I think it's very similar. And, and the other thing is, I mean, one of the issues, for instance, you know, is you know, you, ha you have these compensation models and that they are obviously scrutinized heavily by, by the outside world, the institutionals and the proxies, okay? And I mean, in a situation like this, these, these compensation models don't work because, you know, they are modeled not around extremes, right. they, they are modeled around normality, okay? So, you, got, you can either say, okay, the model, you know, provided that sort of result, and that means you guys don't get paid, you know, neither bonus nor long-term incentive. Or as a board, you can say, hey, guys, you actually, you know, you worked your butt off. You did extremely well. You actually did much more than you would do in under normal circumstances. And we want to recognize that and reward that, okay? Hey, you don't get law for this from the outside, huh? but the board said, okay, we do it. We do it discretionally. And then you get heat, okay? But that's what the board is here for. In the long run, that's the right thing to do. I remain convinced. But that's just one specific right. example. But you see, when you say you take heat, that's what I mean, right? Yeah, what absolutely. I was saying is you have to absorb some of yeah. the pressure from the outside. Yeah. yeah, but that's what the board is here for. I mean, you know. You are decently paid, and, and, and that, that's also stewardship, okay? I mean, it's not to fulfill short-term interests of, of, of some sort of investor. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's to make sure that you do the right... It's about this whole framework, okay? For sustainable long-term success in an entrepreneurial manner. And if that means, you know, you've got to do something that is out of the ordinary, and that is maybe not, you know, in the book. Uh, the, I, I mean, no, no, of course, legal. I understand, yeah. but it's unusual. Yeah, and then, some then folks you do it. Like it then, then you do it. Then you do it. Okay. Now, I mean, in hindsight, they all say that's the right thing you've done. Okay? Right. Uh, what's most exciting about Starman's future? Look, uh, I mean, you said I've been, been with this organization a long time. Uh, we have this, what we call uh, Go5 initiative or aspiration. So, and that's in, in the most simple terms, how do we get the company where it is today to a 5 billion revenue company over the next, whatever, 10 years, okay? And, From and, two to five. Yeah, and, and that's uh, something obviously uh, we, we've been working on with support of the IMD. And, and that tells you simply what the opportunity is. You know, we, we, are, we are in a, in a niche with you know, tooth replacement and, and tooth correction with the implants, the aligners. 
but that's a huge opportunity. Okay, so if we don't do everything wrong, we should be able to continue to nicely grow. That, that, that's one. The other one is also, I think, intellectually, you know, uh, we've been, we, we still are a B2B company. Okay, we service our dental, our dentists, dental practices. Uh, more and more, we need to kind of get into the minds of the consumers, meaning the patients. Who would uh, ask for your products. Exactly. Because what's happening, we, we see a continuous concentration on the customer side. Okay? So you have the dental service organization, you have the big chains. Okay? And, and, and more and more, we are not servicing you know, the mom and pop dentist shops. Okay. We are servicing the big groups. Obviously, that changes the negotiation situation right. quite a lot. So if we are not able to actually kind of reach the minds and the hearts of the consumers directly and hopefully, you know, uh, bring them to the right provider, okay, uh, we become less relevant. Right. So we that- become more exposed to customer power. Absolutely. Okay. So, so, so that change from a pure B2B into a B2B to C, then the whole digitalization that comes with it, the technology, which is a big part of that, You know, we transitioned from premium to multi-segment. You know, we're serving everything. We, 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 we evolved from a very pure product to a more solution-oriented player. So the next phase is now, you know, how do we tackle this technology shift and how do we actually make sure we stay relevant for the DSOs, for the big customers, and at the same time are able to get into the minds of the patients, you know. And that's, that's super exciting, also intellectually, okay? And so I, I think not only the growth, but also what it all takes to do that, I think it is a huge opportunity and assures that meetings and agendas will not get uh, dull. How present are the final consumers, the patients in your discussion. So you've just said, look, there's an exciting business agenda. How successful are you and how do you manage to make sure that this is not just about money and about implants and about devices, but it also remains about the patients? Does that play a role in, in maintaining the energy in the company or do the patients disappear in time? No, no, I, I think the patients are continuously gaining. I mean, honestly, they are not yet as present, you know, as they should be, okay? And we're working hard on this. Now, having entered into direct-to-consumer aligners, you know, with Dr. Smile, for instance, that, that's, that's helping from a business perspective to make it very visible to everybody. But genetically or from our DNA, historically, the patient is not necessarily at the core of thinking. Although, Historically, when this company was founded, you know, it was all about patients, you know. What kind of devices do you do to provide the best possible treatment outcome and quality of life to patients? And that was done together with universities in the development and everything. So it, somewhere it has always been, but being obviously B2B, it kind of has become a little bit second, uh, center, uh, second stage. Uh, 
but it needs to be much more center stage going forward. And we're working hard on this one, and I can tell you it's not easy. So this Why is a... Why is it not easy? Because it, it's not part of the DNA, you know, and it, it's, and it has a lot to do with culture at the end of the day. You know, putting the consumer at the core of all you do. And uh, so you may know we, we've spent already a lot of time and effort and money on culture, and we will continue to do that. And, and that is one big element to make sure, okay, let's rewire the people that this patient becomes much more obvious and that this becomes kind of the, the, the centerpiece of why we're doing things, okay, to the benefit of the patient. We have people who have had no teeth or miserable teeth, the quality of life, the impact it has on, on your self-esteem, you know, on your appearance and, and all of that. It's extraordinary. If you see these stories, okay, I mean, you start crying. It, it really is. It really is. Huh? And so one of the challenges is how do we get these testimonials to be part of more of everyday uh, yeah. discussions. Yeah, and our new CEO does a lot of that, actually. He, he really has fully embraced this. And in a purpose-oriented world, that becomes even more important. You know, it's important also for the people that work with us. I mean, it, it's, we are in a good space. We do, we do good to society and for patients, okay? We don't need to do a lot of soul searching. Why are we existing? Okay, it's actually quite easy, huh? And it, that, that's super. Last question, Gilbert, and a more personal one. Let's assume for a second that you and I were at Saint Gallen together thirty some years ago, and you know we we got along well, but somehow our paths uh, diverged, and we lost sight of one another for thirty years. And now we we reconvene, and uh, and I remember well uh, the Gilbert of thirty some years ago and I meet the Gilbert of today. What kind of differences would I observe between these two people? And if there are differences, to what extent did you actually work on creating these differences? How much of, of the Gilbert Ackerman we see today is a person that you worked on? Well, first of all, you see some more gray hairs and some more pounds. <laughs> uh, I have been, or I used to be an introvert. I still am, actually. I think I'm probably more balanced, much more rich in, in the sense of personality and experience, obviously, m much more. I'm more tolerant. I have lost some of the edges, okay? I think I, I managed to stay, let's say, humble. I still feel the most comfortable with, you know, my old friends from the St. Gallen time, you know? Who, who don't care what I do and, and how successful or not successful I am. I'm intellectually probably much richer and much more experiences. But all in all, I think I'm still very much the person that I used to be. I don't think I have fun, I lost kind of touch with my base, right. let's put it this way. Did you work at this or did it just happen? I think it's a question of, of getting older. And then, then it's also a question of your environment, you know, your family, your wife, uh, partner, whatever, you know. And, and I think I'm, I'm extremely well supported in that regard. <laughs> My surrounding keeps me very straight in that regard. Gilbert, thank you very much for your time and for your insights. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank, thank you, you. Jean-François.